we're just going to do two verses in this, although I'll allude to the context that's there. Verses 11, uh, sorry, not 11, 12, 12 and 13. Those are the two verses. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let's pray. Glorious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know the three of you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, as well as your incomparably great power for us who believe. And we ask this not because of our merit, but because of the obedience of Jesus. Amen. Uh, been a weird week, right? Um, I missed the whole Floyd thing for a couple of days. I don't know how I missed it. Uh, could be because I don't watch the news. <laughs> but nonetheless, it started to show up on my social media, and uh, it was predominantly, this is a horrible thing. And so uh, people were lamenting and people were angry about uh, the situation that happened up in Minneapolis and, and uh, what my policy generally is with these things is to not say a word because I want to wait it out, get more of the story, see what's really going on before I, I go to rash judgments. So I'm not one of those guys who has to apologize for being um, uh, very adamant about something later on, uh, which has happened in a few cases. And one of the things that also is uh, this week sort of getting back into the why, and getting back into the why means now I'm watching the TV news while I'm, at, I'm on the elliptical trainer. And imagine my surprise to see riots beginning to take place. The protests that somehow, um, the protests which were good, the protests which I think were necessary, morphed into something that was unnecessary and dangerous with these riots that took place. Businesses destroyed. Police precincts burned to the ground. Buses or public transportation burned to the ground. Last night in Indianapolis, three people were killed. Uh, people were arrested for throwing Molotov cocktails at police vehicles. This is not peaceful. This is destructive. Race has again reared its ugly head within our culture. The problems that we want to go away seemingly can't and won't go away. This is not a sermon about that but it touches on that. Here in the letter to the Corinthians, uh, they're, they're dealing with differences in gifts, differences in cultures, and differences in power that divided their church. 
Paul is addressing similar issues, even though there weren't any riots that were taking place in Corinth. And so how is it that Paul addresses these things that are taking place within Christ's blood-bought church? So we see some of this in, in verse 12, the first part of his response to this in verse 12. And let's remember that these verses don't just arise out of the ether. They, they arise out of a historical context, but also they're part of the what comes before it and what comes after it in 1 Corinthians, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12. This plot, this is pulled from the middle of a discussion, Paul's discussion, about the variety of spiritual gifts. And what was going on within the church in Corinth is that some of them were exalting their gifts above the gifts of others. They seemed that they, they thought that they were more important than other people because they had a better gift than other people happened to have. There was an experience here of superiority as well as exclusion that was taking place. I'm reminded of my days as a very young Christian uh, in a conservative Baptist church up in Nashua, New Hampshire. is the first church I went to after I became a Christian. And, and it was, in many ways, a great experience for me. This was sort of a what I'm calling a magnet church in that it was large enough that it had some ministries that a lot of smaller churches around it didn't have. And so there was a really big youth group that I ended up volunteering as a, a you know, staff member for. Uh, it, it had a, a singles fellowship, and I was there and all this stuff. And so the people who would be attracted to these ministries that still went to their own churches on Sunday but would show up for, for singles or youth ministry stuff... They came from a variety of backgrounds. And so we had Lutheran guys and Pentecostal people. And it was really, in many ways, a melting pot of the local Christian community. And there are many ways that there, that was very good. And then there were some ways that that was not so good. And a lot of that not so good seemed to center on spiritual gifts and the charismatic movement. I remember, uh, you know, as a new Christian, you're trying to figure all this stuff out, right? And so uh, one of the guys that was there, a guy named James Nelson, he was one of the Pentecostal guys, and I remember this time, he's praying over me so that I get the gifts, you know, and I get the baptism of the Spirit, and, and I'm not sure how disappointed he was when nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> so depending on your perspective on these things, something's either wrong with me or was wrong with his theology, We'll see where we go by the end of this sermon, okay? But there was also struggles in the youth group because one of the things that I've learned uh, from the mistakes that were there is they had people on volunteer youth staff that were not members of that church. And so uh, here I am shortly after I, I... I'm on my probationary period for youth volunteers, and the youth pastor leaves to take a church somewhere else. And now all of a sudden, some of these other people are starting to grill me on my views of the spiritual gifts. And being the rather young and naive Christian I was, I told them what I thought. You know, I'd been reading a lot and all of this kind of stuff, and I told some of these people, and what happened is 
I wasn't charismatic enough, and I was excluded from staff until all of those people kind of got pushed out by the new youth pastor who would come in. And so superiority, exclusion, we've seen it. Some of us have experienced it over, over these issues, and that's what was going on in Corinth. Uh, But it wasn't just those issues that were going on in Corinth. There were also societal divisions that had entered into the church and had begun to devastate the church through divisions. And Paul mentions those in verse 13. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. They were marked by a number of power struggles that existed within the church of Corinth. There were differences in race and culture. Uh, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city, and there were people from all kinds of backgrounds that were there, including some Jewish people. And that that same animosity that takes place in in, uh, Israel was taking place within Corinth between Jews and Greeks. But, you know, if you pay any attention to any kind of cosmopolitan area, there are people groups that don't like each other. Okay? And so, in Corinth, surely it wasn't, you know, the Greeks refer not simply to people who are Greek an ancestry, but is used as a blanket term for Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. And so you have all this melting pot of personalities, not just personalities, but backgrounds and languages and customs that were taking place within uh, the church in Corinth. It was not just out there, but it had moved in here, so to speak. And so because you have all of these different ethnic backgrounds tossed in there, you have probably, imagine, differences of style of music or instrumentation, perhaps. Forms of dress and, and uh, criteria for what is modesty might different, uh, differ between these people. Uh, customs as to how much you can say and how much you can't say. Sort of like the difference between the blunt Yankee and the polite Southerner. Okay? Gonna clash. And so there are these differences of race and culture that are affecting congregational life in Corinth, but it's also differences in power. Because Paul does mention slaves or free, social class standing mattered in Corinth. There were people who had no standing and people who had all the power. And the question is, were those same patterns going to be brought into the church so that the freeborn people and the ones who had bought their freedom, they had power and authority in the church and the people who were slaves would have none? Were they going to mirror the world around them or were they going to be a new society where these things weren't as important. Not obliterated, but that that was not what determined life within the church. So you see, we see these great struggles uh, that the church in Corinth is experiencing. And, And don't worry, that's only a few of them. There's more that was plaguing this church in Corinth. It was a mess. 
But differences in preference and in background can dominate a church and can ultimately destroy a church. Uh, there are times to leave a church. Absolutely. When, when there is doctrinal deviation, and, and that's been discussed, and, and it's, it, they still go down the wrong road, then it's time to leave a church. If you see that sin, I mean, and I mean sin, okay, where God's law is being broken, not people's preferences being offended, where, where sin is not addressed, uh, then it's time to leave a church. And so uh, don't, what I'm about to say here, don't take as, as a, an absolute statement, but put it within that context. But sometimes people leave over differences in opinion, differences in preference, not doctrine, not holiness, and Paul has to remind these people who are devouring themselves, similar to how the Galatians were, he says, the body is one. That's one of the words that keeps being repeated like a drumbeat within this passage. One, 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 one. And has many members. In other words, Paul is talking here about unity, not uniformity. And so uh, what Paul is saying is, all you people who have different spiritual gifts, that's good. You're all needed because you're all part of one body, and that body needs all of you to function properly. And so we don't need to say, oh, his gift is good, but hers is not so good. We need to say, both he and her are needed for the well-being and healthy functioning of the body. Many net members, or many limbs, but one body. Now this metaphor is used in um, secular context around this time as well. A number of non-Christian writings utilize this, but usually what they do is they're trying to preserve the status quo. Meaning... Um, we're the head and you're the toes. We're important, you're not important, but, but stick with it because we're one body. But that's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing is he's, he's saying it's the body that's important, not necessarily the function you perform within the body, but, your, but everybody's function matters. So function on the health of the body. Not every member is the same. Some of them are eyes, some of them are ears, some of them are toes, some of them are lungs, some of them are feet, noses, etc. But you know what matters? The DNA and every cell. Because the DNA in every cell is identical. One body. Different parts, different functions, but one body. And so Paul wants them to, to keep this in mind. To, to not dwell in all the differences, but to remember the incredible unity that is being produced. 
And as a result, we see that unnecessary division is painful for a body. Some people lose limbs or digits, and they have phantom pain for a long time. It's painful for one part of the body to be removed by accident. The rest of the body continues to suffer not just the phantom pain, but also the body has to begin to compensate for the lack of that body part. That's why excommunication is so serious. Because excommunication is is properly understood as the removal of a diseased part of the body before it kills the whole. It's, it's, it's like a gangrenous limb that needs to be cut off so that the, the poison doesn't spread and infect the rest of the body. And so Paul moves from this illustration of the body and says, so it is with Christ. He's speaking of the body of Christ, otherwise known as the church. The church is comprised of many people, but it's one body united in Jesus Christ. And so when we we reckon with this, we see that unnecessary division is in a sense a denial of the gospel. But what we also see positively through that idea of DNA, for instance, is that identity Our identity ought to be in Christ. Our identity is not in our gifts. It's not in our function within the church. Our identity is not in our race. It is is not in our social status or standing. It's in Christ. And so if we take that idea of unity, not uniformity, we recognize or ought to recognize that there can be healthy legitimate disagreements with one another. You and I, we don't have to agree about whether or not people should wear masks in a store. We don't have to agree about that. Okay? Now, some people act like we do need to, but that's not, what we, that's not something we need to agree about. We can have differences of opinion on, on political matters and still be one body. We can have differences of opinion on economic matters and still be one body. We can struggle with this question of of racism and have different viewpoints on it uh, because of our experiences and still be one body. We can cheer for the Broncos and the Patriots and still be one body. I felt like I needed to lighten it up a little bit there, folks. Okay. What I'm getting at is what it says in chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith in paragraph 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And so if, if there is something that is a, a matter of disagreement that is not clearly from the scriptures, we shouldn't be dividing over it. We, we should not be disfellowshipping people over it. We should not be disfellowshipping ourselves over it. We should be giving people the freedom to disagree. 
I don't have to like your music. You don't have to like mine. Some of you like country music. Can't stand it. It's okay, though. I don't have to like it. It's all right. My kids don't have to like my music unless they're in my car and I'm listening to it. (laughs) But often I defer, and that's an important thing. And so what, what we ought to see from this first question is that the answer really is in Christ there is one body of different members. Unity, not uniformity. How are we in Christ in the first place is probably a really good question, and that's something that Paul addresses uh, predominantly in the first part of verse 13. Paul uses this logical connector, that word for. Okay, He's showing the, the Corinthians that he's not changing subjects, but really he's kind of clarifying and driving this point home even further. That the reason we're in one body is because In the Spirit, he says, we were all, another one of those key words in this passage, all, we were all baptized into one body. And so we're in this one body of Christ precisely because the Holy Spirit has baptized us into that one body. We're passive in this. God is active in this. What's going on here? Well, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam. And we see Adam formed of the dust, and God breathed into him, and he became a living soul. Adam had had the Holy Spirit. Adam, initially, was intended to be a prophet, priest, and king in the garden, and to expand the garden, and to to produce worship upon the face of the earth as he expanded the garden, as he subdued the, well, filled the earth, subdued it, and ruled over it. And so one of the things that happens when Adam and Eve sin is that the spirit is lost. We were intended to dwell or have the Holy Spirit dwell within us, and yet because of Adam's sin, That's not happening. And so we see that um, as time passes on, that the Old Testament promises the return of the Spirit to be in God's people. In fact, we have this passage in Numbers 11 where the Holy Spirit has been given to the elders of the church for the government of the people, and uh, there's a little bit of jealousy that happens, just like in Corinth, okay? And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? He's talking to his brother. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so uh, Moses recognizes that, that he's a prophet that because God has placed his spirit on them, but he longed for that time when all God's people would have the Holy Spirit. We see the promise of that spirit being poured out in Joel chapter 2. 
Oh, we see the promise of the Holy Spirit in the reading that we had from Ezekiel 36. And so there's this anticipation through the Old Testament that there will be a time when all God's people will have the Holy Spirit. It will not just be prophets, priests, and kings. When we get to the New Testament, in Mark 1, verse 8, we see that John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, John the baptizer is clarifying these Old Testament prophets and saying, it's, it's going to come, and it's going to come from Jesus. And so we get to Acts 1, and Jesus, who has been crucified, now he's raised from the dead, and he's spending a few some time with his disciples, and he tells them, stay here in Jerusalem. Why? Because power is going to come on you. How? You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you will be my witnesses in all the world. From Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's the pattern that's going to be followed through all the book of Acts as the gospel spreads out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and then the ends of the earth as we see in the ministry of Paul. What happens in the very next chapter is Pentecost, which is why we're talking about this now. And the Holy Spirit was poured down upon the people In explaining what happened, Peter refers back to Joel 2 and the Spirit being poured on all flesh, male and female. All who believe receive the Spirit. And we see that continuing. Because... You know, when the gospel gets to Samaria, they're not sure. Are these people, you know, really saved? Because, remember, they've got generations of animosity towards those Samaritans. Can God really save the Samaritans? And so what God does is a similar thing to Pentecost to indicate to them that God has indeed saved these believing Samaritans. And so what happens when they they go to Antioch and uh, Caesarea, places where there are Gentiles, and these, these Gentiles seem to believe what happens? The same Spirit comes upon them in the same way so that these prejudicial, racist, Jews recognize that these Gentiles are saved too. That they too are brought into Christ. And those old prejudices need to die. Now, we don't have Pentecosts anymore because the Pentecosts have happened. You have a personal Pentecost, but it's when you believe. We note, if we're paying attention, in Acts chapter 2, that the the Spirit came upon all 120 of those disciples that were gathered, not just the apostles that were gathered amongst them. We see the same thing when the gospel goes to Samaria and to the Gentile populations. And so it's important for us to remember that from that point going forward, the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians. And that's what Paul is getting at. 
you were or we were, because Paul's including himself in this, it's not just particular to the Corinthian church, but we were all baptized into one body. All who are Christians are people who have been baptized or overwhelmed into this one body, the body of Christ. We see this in Galatians 3, where Paul talks about how Jesus bears the curse, okay, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit, how? Through faith. And so this promised Spirit comes to all who believe in Jesus Christ as the suffering Savior of sinners. Personal faith in the personal Savior brings incorporation into the body of Christ, communion with Christ and his people. We see a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 1. In him, referring to Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. That's that's one of the key things. When When you didn't just hear the gospel, but you believe the gospel, that you're a sinner and Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and that you have eternal life in his name. When you believe those things, okay, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. And so we have the already gift of the Holy Spirit where, and, and the not yet gift of the inheritance, which is to come. And so as, as we, we seek to understand this, some people look at this word, they see baptism, and they automatically think what? Well, what we did to Jameson, a.k.a. Nathan, a year ago. <laughs> why, are you, why are you going down like that, Jameson? Um, we think of the rite of baptism, which is, uh, you know, is a sign of one's incorporation into the visible body of Christ. But what's also it's a sign of is this baptism of the Spirit, which is our initiation into the invisible church. Paul here in Romans 12, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, is not speaking about water baptism, but that to which it points, spirit baptism. Because of the way he's speaking about it, it's not simply incorporation into the visible church, but there's also, he's speaking about spiritual salvific realities that are taking place. So, This is important for us to keep in mind because Paul in Romans 8 talks about this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, you don't exist simply within the realm of the physical, but now because of Christ you exist within the realm of the Holy Spirit under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. If, in fact, Paul continues, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And then bouncing down to verse 13, uh, 11, if the Spirit of Him who, was, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So again, again, Paul is getting at these salvific realities that take place. And without the Holy Spirit, we have no experience of salvation. And the only way to have this experience of salvation, to have the gift of the Spirit, is faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is not just given to people who have certain gifts, as we think about Corinth. It's not simply given to people who who come from certain cultures. Or who have a certain shade of skin. It's not given to people of certain classes. Only the rich or only the poor. The Spirit is the one who ultimately joins people from all of those different backgrounds into this one body with Jesus. And so what we ought to understand is that factions and divisions oppose the Holy Spirit's work and disrupt the bond of peace that Jesus bled to produce for us. And we see this in Ephesians 4. I'm sorry, I'm kind of flying a a bit all over the place today. That's what happens when I do these special sermons for holy days. But he talks about, and, and, and catch the repetition of words here, the significant words. Listen. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity, unity, unity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts, not uniformity. And so we see that Jesus unites the church with the Spirit. Well, let's think this through. That's when we believed, but does that mean, what happens now? What's going on now with regard to the Spirit? Is anything happening now, so to speak? And we see that in the second part of verse 13. Not only were all baptized, but Paul says, all were made to drink of one Spirit. So, all of them, all of us. And that is incredibly significant. For instance, I'm not the only one who has friends who are charismatic or Pentecostal. And sometimes those, those friends who are Pentecostal or charismatic will ask, 
if you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when I've talked with my kids, I've brought them to this passage. You can't be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to every Christian. Now, some Pentecostal uh, scholars will try to build a separation between the baptism of the Spirit that Paul just talked about in the first half of this verse and drinking from the Spirit in the second one as though it's a, a second blessing kind of thing. And no, everyone who has been baptized drinks. Uh, I can't see how you can get around that in this passage. All drink from the Spirit, the one Spirit. All of us, just as it was all of them. We are all part of one body through one Spirit of whom we now drink. And again, Paul is hitting that unity drumbeat to a divided church. Drinking has obviously this idea of providing a drink to water. We've got some new plants out there. Asher asked me today, do you want me to water the plants? Sure, Ash, go for it. We want those plants to last a long time. They need water to live. It also speaks of irrigating plants or crops. And so let's think of it this way. My friends who don't live in Arizona wonder why I have irrigation. Because for them, irrigation is for lawns, right? Do I have a lawn? No lawn. But my wife likes plants. My wife likes to see green. And so as a result, because I love my wife, and I'm trying to love her like Christ loved the church, I want her to have green. And that means there's going to be green-growing things in our, on our property. And in order for there to be green-growing things on our property, we need to irrigate them. I'm ignoring what's going on back there. <laughs> blocking it out, blocking it out. Um, so, irrigation system. And many of you have seen how frustrated I have been with my irrigation system for the last year and a half, as it seems like every time I patch a hole in my irrigation system, uh, two or three new holes emerge almost immediately. And there's a, I go for a walk, I come back, I come in the house, I think everything is well, and then Amy comes and says, there's a geyser in the front yard as another hole has emerged and it's shooting up into the sky. And so we got a new irrigation system. Why? Because without water, my lemon tree is going to die. And I want lemons. Jesus wants fruit on his vine, and he gives the Holy Spirit to irrigate or water his church, his vine, so that it bears much good fruit. Okay? Okay? Jesus speaks about this in, in John 7 where he's at the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the last day of the feast. Now, remember, why do they have a Feast of Tabernacles? To remember their times wandering in the wilderness. What was something that they often lacked in the wilderness? Water. Okay. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, or you know, the culminating day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John mentions that this is, in this way, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. That Jesus gives the Holy Spirit so that his people are well irrigated and they're able to live with hope in a hopeless world and they're able to be growing and maturing and flourishing in a veritable spiritual desert. Now, some people have tried to tie this into the Lord's Supper because of the word drinking, but this is not simply about a sacrament. This applies again, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture, whether you're a New, York, uh, New England Yankee or you're from uh, Georgia in the Deep South or you know, the Midwest or the West, where all those independent kind of people are. Doesn't matter. Doesn't, it applies as well to, your, to you regardless of your gender, regardless to your standing in society, with, regardless of how much power you may or may not have. Christ supplies spiritual nourishment that you need in a time of COVID. The spiritual nourishment you need in a time of race riots. The spiritual nourishment you need when you've been diagnosed with cancer. The spiritual nourishment you need when your marriage stinks. The spiritual nourishment you need when a loved one of yours is not walking with Jesus. The spiritual nourishment you need when school has been canceled or been postponed and stuck at home and all of that fun stuff. And you have to deal with your parents all the time. The spiritual nourishment you need when you're the parent who's not used to dealing with those kids all day long. The spiritual nourishment you need comes from Jesus through his Holy Spirit. In other words, another way of putting this would be having begun by the Spirit through baptism, the church and the Christian are sustained by the Spirit. Jesus keeps His body, His spiritual body, alive by saturating it with the Holy Spirit in the midst of hostile conditions. You don't live in a hothouse. You don't live in a rainforest. You live in a spiritual desert. But have no fear. Jesus sends his spirit. So even though you feel you're alone, you're not. Even though you might think you're at the end of your rope because here we go again with another cycle of, of racism and riots, you're not at the end of your rope because Jesus continues to sustain by the power of his Holy Spirit. When you think you're at the end of the rope because you know, you've got a parent in a nursing home or you realize, I'm soon going to be in a nursing home 
and I can't trust a governor to keep COVID out. Christ sustains by his Spirit. And so Jesus sustains the church by the Spirit. So there we have it. Last night I was overwhelmed with the news that was coming out of city after city, it seemed. Uh, looking at things online and discouraged and having, having to remember that beautiful rainbow I saw earlier in the day, which reminds us that this is not the end of the world. That God's bow is pointed away that his son has borne the arrow that we deserved and that there will one day be justice, just not today. And until that, until the time when the not yet becomes now, already, Jesus sustains his church. He's brought us together as one, by the Spirit, and now he continues to sustain us as one by the Spirit. And that's why we don't have to let differences of opinion on social issues or even decisions about church to bring division, fractionalism to the church. Our big idea is that Jesus gives and sustains life in the church through the Spirit. That kind of ties all those things together into one little package for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray I preached way too long today. But we needed to hear about what you do through your Son and through your Spirit. Help us to believe it. Help us to turn to receive it, to, to be nourished by Jesus when we're feeling weak and frail and messed up instead of thinking that we're reliant upon ourselves or our spouse or our friend when they don't have everything necessary to sustain our spirits. Thank you that you give sufficient and abundantly according to your grace in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.